Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 35, 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. We're going to open this week in verse 14 of 2 Kings chapter 22. And it's here that we learn of a female prophet named Huldah and of King Josiah sending an embassy to her consisting of his royal court plus the high priest. And this is for the purpose of making a dramatically important inquiry of God. Now, even though Jeremiah and Zephaniah were the major prophets of this era. And Jeremiah was indeed active at the very time that we're studying. And he was considered the chief prophet of Judah and therefore of King Josiah. We find Josiah insisting that this committee of his top aides seeks out Huldah. Now the ancient Hebrew sages speculate as to why this is. But more than likely, it was little more than Jeremiah was somewhere else at the moment and King Josiah wanted an immediate answer to his inquiry. Now, although the Talmud lists seven, only three women are named in the scriptures as prophets. Miriam, Deborah, and Huldah. Now, the ancient Hebrew sages speculate as to why that is, and I think the main reason is that they attach a lot of significance to certain women that the Bible just doesn't. And we find a lot of that with the Talmud. Now, Huldah is the only female prophet that the Bible makes us aware of for this entire, well, what would it be? 400-year period of the kings of Israel beginning with King Saul, all the way down through the last Hebrew king, Zedekiah. And the thing that we need to notice is that the three female prophets, which are biblical rarities, by the way, appeared during some of Israel's darkest days, and especially at times when men either failed badly in their roles as leaders, or... Generally, they refused to step forward and take hold of their God-given responsibilities. And so women were essentially pressed into service to take on what was a typical male role. Now, little is known of Huldah. The Talmud, again, Jewish tradition, says she was descended from Joshua and Rahab of Jericho fame. She was the wife of a great man, Shalom, who was one of the few bright spiritual lights of his generation. Now some excellent scholars such as R.R. Wilson have actually reconstructed a family tree for uh, Shalom and it appears he was the uncle of the prophet Jeremiah, meaning Huldah was Jeremiah's aunt. That would help explain how Huldah was such an accepted and revered prophet even though she was a female. Now, tradition is also 
that Shalom was in charge of the wardrobe, meaning all of the holy vestments of the Levitical priesthood. Now, this was anything but a menial task. Shalom would have been in charge of the handling of all of the holy garments, as priests did not wear their priestly garments unless they were on duty. So, they were issued their priest's clothing at the beginning of their duty cycle, then they turned them in for cleaning and for care when their turn at serving at the temple ended. And no doubt the priest's garb that they wore would then be handed out and used by other priests. No chance could be taken that these holy garments worn by the priests, some of whom actually entered into the holy sanctuary, might become defiled. So they were carefully controlled. Now saying that Shalom was the keeper of the wardrobe means that he was in charge of the department not the one who actually did the labor involved. So it was a very high position of the greatest honor that he held. Well, let's reread a small portion of 2 Kings 22. 2 Kings 22. Open your Bibles to page 429 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read beginning at verse 14. So, Hilkiah the Kohen, Achiam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah the prophet, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harchas, keeper of the wardrobe. And she lived in the second quarter of Jerusalem and spoke with her. And she told them, Adonai the God of Israel says to tell the man who sent you to me that Adonai says this. I am going to bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. Every word in the scroll the king of Judah has read because they have abandoned me. They have offered to other gods in order to provoke me with everything they do. Therefore my anger will burn against this place and it will not be quenched. But you are to tell the king of Judah who sent you to consult Adonai that Adonai the God of Israel also says this. In regard to the words you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before Adonai when you heard what I said against this place and its inhabitants, that they would become an object of astonishment and cursing, and you've torn your clothes and you've cried out before me, I have also heard you, said Adonai. Therefore I will gather you to your ancestors, you will go to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the calamity I'm going to bring on this place. So they brought the word back to the king. Now King Josiah and his royal court resided in the city of David. And at the same time Huldah lived in Jerusalem. Now by now, what had been two separate cities, separated only by perhaps 400 yards, were thoroughly merged. The city of David was seen as more the royal and the aristocratic compound. And Jerusalem, the place where the non-royal and less privileged citizens lived. Now Huldah lived in a section of Jerusalem called in Hebrew the Mishneh. This area right over here. Here you see the 
the Temple Mount. This is the area we're talking about. Now since Mishneh is a general word that usually means the second, Hebrew and Christian Bible scholars have had some difficulty trying to figure out what's intended in this context. That same designation is found in Zephaniah 1.10 used in the same way. So whatever was meant, it was self-evident to the people of that day. And the complete Jewish Bible translated as second quarter, a, a more or less proper name for an identifiable, probably newer, section of an expanding Jerusalem. The Greek Septuagint, written around 250 BC, more or less agrees and gives the place the name Mashana. Notice the similarity to Mishnah. However, some Jewish sages say that this is speaking of a school. So they translate it as study house. And I think that's the least likely of all the possibilities. But lately, archaeological finds have uncovered what was an extensive settlement on the western hill of Jerusalem enclosed by a somewhat separate city wall and it goes back to the days of Hezekiah, meaning the wall was in existence for about 75 years before Josiah's day. It's all but certain that this section of Jerusalem uh, is where Hulda lived and is here referred to as the Mishneh. So the group of five sent by King Josiah walks over to Hulda's residence and they present her with this urgent matter. And recall that the issue is that the Torah scroll that normally resided next to the Ark of the Covenant in the temple had been hidden away someplace for so many years that its existence was all but forgotten. But during the refurbishment of the temple, a worker stumbled across the scroll. It was turned over to Hilkiah the high priest, who then sent it to the king so that he could know its contents. And when the Torah was read to him, he realized what it was. And God's, that God's commandments weren't being followed. They hadn't been followed for generations. But he became utterly terrified when the curses, the consequences for trespassing against God's Torah commandments were read to him. Even so, he wasn't exactly sure how this might affect him, how it might affect his kingdom in this generation. Thus he rightly decided to immediately inquire of Jehovah what this all meant. So he sought the services of a prophet. Now before we get to how Hulda responded to this, I'd like to point out that in my opinion, we're seeing a replay of this pattern in our day. And interestingly, it's not within Judaism, but rather within God's ecclesia, God's congregation of believers. It's at the core of the so-called Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement. And the gist of it is that many believers in Jesus Christ have realized that Christianity has long ago thrown out the Old Testament, including the Torah, as, as a source of divine truth, and so it's been judged as either inferior to the New Testament or no longer relevant at all to our faith. And at the same time, many have noticed a steady decline 
in the church, in mor- uh, morally and spiritually speaking. A-, a lack of solid teaching of the Word of God. It's been replaced with allegorical sermons that use a verse or two to validate some doctrinal or social position. And the establishment of a traditional belief that strictly obeying and doing the Word of God is tantamount to legalism. Yet all over the world, Christians who have a growing hunger for God and for His Son Yeshua and are longing to live out a meaningful life of faith and obedience have rediscovered the Torah as our needed foundation. And perhaps maybe even the missing link for our walk with Messiah. It is serving to expose long-held man-made doctrines as poor substitutes, to say it mildly, for the written divine biblical commandments of God. Now I confess that my first reaction, and I know the reaction of many when we began to study the Torah was one of unease or even alarm, great alarm. It's because we suddenly realize, as Josiah did, that we've not been obedient to the Lord. We've been trespassing, we've been sinning in the most gross ways without fully realizing it, without acknowledging it, and that there are serious repercussions for this. But the $64,000 question among Messianics and Hebrew Roots folks is, how does the rediscovered Torah apply to our lives, to our circumstances, in a time and in a society so far removed from when it was written? Which laws and commands should we follow? Which ones are simply expressions of ancient cultural customs and ought to be taken as principles but not necessarily obeyed literally? See, this was Josiah's challenge too. Because he was the first Hebrew leader in a very long time to take the matter seriously. Tradition, custom, um, ritual mixed with paganism, It had taken the place of the Torah commandments, but people didn't realize it, and they didn't question it. They thought they were being pious, righteous, pleasing to God. See, the Torah was old news in Josiah's day. Having been handed down from on high to Moses seven or eight centuries earlier, to the point that by now the people and their leadership had lost interest in it. Think about it. What relevance might we see to our 21st century lives in a document written to an ancient culture in 1200 or 1380 somewhere in Europe? Even our 250-year-old American Constitution is now viewed skeptically by many who see it, in many circumstances, as too old to be relevant to our modern, enlightened society. That is somewhat how it must have felt to Josiah's Jewish society when the Torah scroll was unearthed in the temple repair project, and it was read. But as a footnote, isn't it ironic that Christians today generally have no problem 
accepting an 1,800-year-old New Testament written by Hebrews, but in an ancient Greek dialect, as modern enough and relevant enough to follow, but a 3,400-year-old document, the Torah, written by Hebrews in Hebrew, is a bit too ancient. And so it's too irrelevant to follow. Go figure. Anyway, Hulda, Hulda's prophetic oracle begins in verse 15. And it's shocking, to say the least. You know, it's not hard to imagine these stunned men standing silently as she begins by saying, Say to the man who sent you. Now, Bible scholars note this strange remark of saying the man when she fully understood it was King Josiah who sent these men to her. The rabbis say that she was just being blatantly disrespectful to the king. However, there can be little doubt that Huldah and her husband Shalom were ardent supporters of Josiah and agreed with his determination to reform Judah and and temple worship. So this this has to have had a higher meaning. C.F. Keel, that great 19th century Bible commentator, says that Hulda made use of the expression the man because the oracle she was about to give applied not just to the king who was seeking this information but to everyone who would pay attention to it. This contrasts then with verse 18 when the second part of the oracle applies only to the king himself because there she says and concerning the king of Judah who sent you to inquire. So essentially, Hulda validated the fears that Melech Yoshial, King Josiah, had expressed. And in, that indeed God's wrath against Judah was already a decided matter in heaven, and soon it would be on earth. On account of their idolatry, all of Judah, all of Jerusalem was going to pay the price, and no amount of repentance is going to change the Lord's mind. Death, destruction, and exile were now a scheduled certainty. A line had been crossed. And over it there is no hope. Now here's the thing to grasp. We've discussed before how leaders of congregations and nations bear great responsibility for that group's actions and mindsets. But the group itself can't point to the leader, say that their actions and mindsets are his fault, and shift the accountability to one man. Thus we see something that Jeremiah spent much time prophesying about. The rotten inner core of the people of Judah. And through Josiah's reforms, Many of the pagan altars and the abominable worship practices had been destroyed. The temple had been cleansed. The priesthood was again functioning more like it should. And so the people, under penalty of law, generally obeyed King Josiah's edicts and outwardly seemed to be on the right track. But it was all a mirage. A mirage. The common citizen's heart was far from God. 
They talk the talk. They even seem to walk the walk. But inside, their hearts were corrupted beyond repair. Their idolatry had become so ingrained that the thought of accepting their wrong and changing their minds couldn't advance. Over the preceding decades, many pagan practices had become Hebrewized. They were declared holy. They were held up to God as worship to Him. Even when the prophets told them of their error, the people were told, and and the people were told that so much of what they did was, was pagan. They may have stopped it publicly, but they continued on in secret. Or they obeyed the king. So they weren't punished. But they longed to hang on to these things that they felt so good about. Even though from God's perspective all these things were evil. It's well understood even by secular scholars who study the Bible as merely an example of ancient Hebrew literature, that the reason given for many of God's commandments in the Torah was to counter the behavior of the Canaanites. That is, if the Canaanites shaved and had smooth faces, then Hebrew men should have full beards. If the Canaanites had no sideburns, the Hebrew men should. If the Canaanite women wore their hair long and disheveled, then the Hebrew women should wear their hair neat and tidy. If the Canaanites tattooed themselves, the Hebrews should not decorate their skin. If the Canaanites used metal and wood images of their gods, then the Hebrews should use No images at all. The idea was that the Hebrews' inward change should reflect an outward distinction from those whose land was being taken away from them because of their wickedness, the Canaanites, and being turned over to God's chosen people, the Israelites, because of their redemption. Or put another way, the outward differences of the Israelites in their clothing, their personal grooming, their diet, their religious rituals, circumcision, and all of their holiday observances were to be visible symbols of their invisible and their spiritually set apart status. Yet God knows every human heart. No amount of outward symbols or behaviors can paper over or disguise or hide a person's wicked and unclean heart from him. I think this would be a good time for us to hear from the foremost prophet of that era, Jeremiah. He's got a lot to say about the spiritual condition of the people of Judah even though to themselves the Judahites felt they were in good stead with the Lord this is a somewhat long chapter now 
I want to ask you something unusual. Put your Bibles down. Don't follow along. Do not turn to this passage. I would prefer that you listen carefully to God's Word in order to understand that while this Word originally was meant to speak to Judah's ears and to the few who remained in the land from the ten northern tribes, this is also speaking to those of us who are also God's people by means of our faith in Christ. This was not... This was not a divine warning to pagans. Rather, it's a warning to those who considered themselves as worshipers of the God of Israel. Now, please, don't turn off to it like the people of Jeremiah's time did. So, I'm going to read to you Jeremiah chapter 2. It's a relatively long chapter. I just ask you to please stay with me. The word of Adonai came to me. Go and shout in the ears of Yerushalayim that this is what Adonai says. I remember your devotion when you were young. How as a bride you loved me. How you followed me through the desert through a land not sown. Israel is set aside for Adonai, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devour him will incur guilt. Evil will befall them, says Adonai. Hear the word of Adonai, house of Jacob, and all the families in the house of Israel. Here is what Adonai says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me to make them go so far away from me, to make them go after nothings and become themselves nothings? They didn't ask, where is Adonai who brought us out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the desert, through a land of wastes and ravines, through a land of drought and death, dark shadows through a land where no one travels, where no one has ever lived. I brought you into a fertile land to enjoy its fruit, all of its good things, but when you entered, you defiled my land. You made my heritage loathsome. The priest didn't ask, where is Adonai? Those who deal with the Torah didn't know me. The people's shepherds rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, and they went after things of no value. So again I state my case against you, says Adonai, and I state it against your grandchildren too. Cross to the coasts of the Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if anything like this has happened before. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods and their gods are not gods at all but my people have exchanged their glory for something without value be aghast at you shudder in absolute horror 
says Adonai. For my people have committed two evils. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. Is Israel a slave born into serfdom? If not, why has he become plunder? The young lions are roaring at him. How loudly they're roaring. They desolate his country, demolishing, depopulating his cities. The people of Noph and Tachpanachis feed on the crown of your head. Haven't you brought on this evil yourself? By abandoning Adonai your God who led you all along the way. If you go to Egypt, what's in it for you? Drinking water from the Nile? If you go to Asher, what's in it for you? Drinking water from the Euphrates? Your own wickedness will correct you. Your own backsliding will convict you. You will know and see how bad and bitter it is to abandon Adonai your God and how fear of me is not in you, says Adonai Elohim Sefot. For long ago I broke your yoke. When I snapped your chains, you said, I won't sin. Yet on every high hill and under every green tree, you sprawled and you prostituted yourself, but I planted you as a choice vine, a seed that was fully tested and true. How did you degenerate into such a wild vine for me? Even if you scrub yourself with soda and plenty of soap, the stain of your guilt is still there before me, says Adonai Elohim. How can you say, I'm not defiled? I haven't pursued the Baals. Look at your conduct in the valley. Understand what you've done. You are a restive young female camel running here and there, wild, accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her lust. Who can control her when she's in heat? Males seeking her need not weary themselves because in mating season, oh, they'll find her. Stop before your shoes wear out. Your throat is dry from thirst. But you say, no, it's hopeless. I love these strangers, so I'm going to go after them. Just as a thief is ashamed when he's caught, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, who say to a log, You are my father. They say to a stone, You gave us birth. For they've turned their backs to me instead of their faces. But when trouble comes, they will plead, Rouse yourself! Save us! Where are your gods that you made for yourselves? Let them rouse themselves. See if they can save you when trouble comes. Judah, you have as many gods as you have cities. Why argue with me? You've all rebelled against me, says Adonai. In vain I have struck down your people because they would not receive correction. Your own sword has devoured your prophets like a marauding lion. You of this generation, look at the word of Adonai. Have I seen, been a desert to Israel? 
Or has my land been of oppressive darkness? Why do my people say, Oh, we're free to roam? So, we'll no longer come to you. Does a girl forget her jewelry? A bride, her wedding sash? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days beyond numbering. Oh, you are so clever in your search for love that the worst of women can learn from you. Right there on your clothing is the blood of the innocent poor. Although you never caught them breaking or entering. Yet concerning all these things, you say, I'm innocent. Surely he can't be angry at me. Here I am, passing sentence on you. Because you say, oh, I've done nothing wrong. You cheapen yourself when you change course so often. You'll be disappointed by Egypt too. Just as you were disappointed by Asher. Yes, you'll leave him too with your hands on your heads in shame. Because Adonai rejects those in whom you trust. From them, you'll gain nothing. I could spend a couple of hours, maybe a couple of lessons, just summarizing this chapter, but for your sake I'll resist. The Lord says to His people that He remembers when at first you were devoted to Him. At first you followed Him without question, but soon you started to pull away. You began to give your attention to things in life that are nothings. The people didn't inquire after God any longer. God had given you abundance and now you perceive need for Him is diminished. Even the institutional religious leaders at the highest level, the priest, they stopped inquiring after God. Those leaders who were the keepers and teachers of the Bible, the Torah says, didn't even know Him. In verse 8. Although they must have thought they did. Those who God at one time called his prophets rebelled and they began prophesying in Baal's name instead. Then the Father presents his case against the people. He says in verse 11 Who's ever heard of such a thing that a nation of people exchange their gods for a different set of gods? But For Israel to do so was for them to exchange the real and living God for a bunch of idols that were no gods at all. They exchanged God's glory for the things they put value in, but in fact these things are worthless. And then says the Lord in verse 17, you brought this upon yourselves by abandoning God. And yet, in verse 23, the people deny it they say no no not me I'm not defiled I haven't pursued the false gods and God says in verse 25 okay now that I've told you what's wrong stop it but you say no I love these things I'm going to continue going after them there's nothing wrong in what I do there's nothing wrong in what I observe there's nothing wrong in what I believe The people who call themselves by God's name 
have actually put in their trust in material things and in human philosophies. Verse 17 says they, they say to a wooden log, you're my father. They say to a piece of stone, oh, you're my mother who gave me birth. Stone and wood are what the idols they worship were made out of. And then when trouble comes, they put their hope in all of these material things and in these pieces of stone and wood and in all of these false beliefs that they've set up for themselves and then they're shocked when none of this saves them. Why are you arguing with me about, about it, says the Lord? You have rebelled against me. Admit it. Own up to it. Verse 30 says but you won't receive my correction. Verse 31. Oh, you say we're free to roam. Translation. We have freedom in our redemption to use God's name and then go wherever our hearts lead us because God would never punish us since we're His redeemed people. Then in verse 35 are those words nobody wants to hear. Here I'm passing sentence on you. Because, you say, I've done nothing wrong. In other words, over and over God warns and He chastises and He disciplines His people. But we say that none of this applies to me. My heart's better than yours, so I can follow mine. I can even disobey God's commandments and in many ways that's actually a better thing to do. I'm redeemed. So I can incorporate anything I want to in my worship, in my everyday life, in my religious celebrations. God would never punish me. I'm rule free. Nothing can touch me. I hope you had the ears to hear this. But you didn't lose focus. Sadly, Judah did not. Yeshua made the same type of indictment almost 700 years later, specifically against his church in Revelation chapters 1 through 4. And I urge you to go home and read it at one sitting. It won't take you but 10, 20 to 30 minutes to do it. Well, back to 2 Kings 22. In verse 18, King Josiah's personal devotion to Jehovah is taken into account. And Hulda goes on to praise the king. And she says that the Lord has decided that because Josiah has a soft heart and because he has done his level best to rid his kingdom of all the defilement and the sin and the confusion brought on by the previous regimes of wicked kings, he would not have to observe or he wouldn't fall victim to the coming national catastrophe the exile to Babylon. And the rabbis point out that King Josiah must have been greatly pained by his realization that these people whose welfare he was devoted to were going to experience a horror that they just weren't prepared for. But the Lord in His mercy would postpone that event until Josiah was dead and he wouldn't have to personally witness it. Now verse 20 causes many Bible scholars and teachers a problem. Because in their view, this prophetic promise to Josiah was not kept. 
Here we read that he's promised that he will be gathered to his forefathers in peace. However, later we will read that he was violently killed in battle at Megiddo. How do we reconcile this? Actually, the matter isn't difficult at all. And we're going to address that when we get to it. But for now, I want to move on into 2 Kings 23. Now, this is a very long chapter. We're going to read just a few verses and get just, just barely started today. And then we'll go further into it next week. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 23. Uh, rather, 2 Kings. I'm sorry. 2 Kings chapter 23. We're just going to read the first 19 verses. It is page 430 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Then the king summoned all the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, and they assembled with him. The king went up to the house of Adonai with all the men of Judah, all those living in Jerusalem, the Kohanim, the prophets, all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing everything written in the scroll of the covenant that had been found in the house of Adonai. And the king stood on the platform, and he made a covenant in the presence of Adonai to live following Adonai, observing his commandments, instructions, and regulations wholeheartedly and with all of his being, so as to confirm the words of the covenant written in this scroll. And all of the people stood pledging themselves to keep the covenant. Then the king ordered Hilkiah the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, and the priests of second rank and the doorkeepers to remove from the sanctuary of Adonai all the articles that had been made for Baal, for the Asherah, for the entire army of heaven. And he burned them up outside of Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He deposed the idolatrous priests the kings of Judah had ordained to offer on the high places by the cities of Judah and in the places surrounding Jerusalem. He also deposed those who offered to Baal and to the sun and to the moon and the constellations and the whole army of heaven. And he took the Asherah from the house of Adonai to Wadi Kedron outside Jerusalem and he burned it in Wadi Kedron, stamped the ashes to powder, and he threw the powder onto the burial ground for the common people. He smashed the houses of the cult prostitutes that were in the house of Adonai, where the women also wore garments for the Asherah. He removed the priests from the cities of Judah. Then, from Geba to Beersheba, he desecrated the high places where the priests had been making offerings. He smashed the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, on the left as one enters the city. But although the priests who had been at the high places did not come up to the altar of Adonai in Jerusalem, nevertheless, they did share matzah with their kinsmen. He desecrated the Tophet fire pit in the Ben-Hinnom Valley so that no one could cause his son or daughter to pass through fire as a sacrifice to Molech. He confiscated the horses which the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entrance to the house of Adonai near the room of the officer Natan Melech in the the, uh, uh, side courtyard and he burned up the chariots of the sun. The king smashed the altars on the roof of the upper room of Ahaz which the kings of Judah had made and the altars which Manasseh had made in the uh, two courtyards of the house of Adonai and he broke them into pieces and he threw the rubble into the Wadi Kidron. The king desecrated the high places facing Jerusalem south of the Mount of Destruction which Shlomo, Solomon, the king of Judah had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonites, Chemosh, 
the abomination of Moab, and Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He smashed the standing stones, he chopped down the sacred poles and covered their remains with human bones. He smashed the altar that was at Bethel and the high place made by Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who caused Israel to sin. And yes, he smashed that altar and the high place. He burned that high place and stamped the ashes to powder and burned up the Asherah. And then, as Josiah was turning around, he noticed the burial caves that were there on the mountain. So he sent and had the bones taken out of the burial caves and he burned them up on the altar, thus desecrating it in keeping with the word of Adonai, which the man of God had proclaimed, foretelling that these things would happen. And then he asked, This monument here that I'm looking at, what is it? And the men of the city told him, It marks the burial cave of the man of God who came from Judah and foretold the very things that you have done to the altar at Bethel. And he replied, then let him be. No one is to remove his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed, along with the bones of the prophet who had come from Shomron. And Yoshiao also removed all the shrines of the high places in the city of Shomron, Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made in order to provoke Adonai to anger. And he treated them the same as in Bethel. This chapter is the story of a nationwide revival movement led by King Josiah. And along with it, yet another decisive move by his royal government against apostasy and idolatry. In 2 Chronicles 34, we read that in his twelfth year as king of Judah, He broke down the altars to Baal. The monuments to the sun god were demolished. Sacred poles and carved images were ground to powder. And he killed the priests who had led the people to worship all these things, burning up even their skeletal remains on the same pagan altars that they had sacrificed to all these false gods. So what we're reading about now in this chapter took place six years later in the 18th year of his reign. Now, even though the king was told in the most definite terms by Hulda's message that Judah was doomed, he wouldn't rest content until he'd done all he could do to bring the people of his kingdom to a right place with the God of Israel. Did he not believe the prophecy that this was a done deal? That no amount of change at this point was going to help? Perhaps he remembered when Isaiah told Hezekiah that he would surely die. But Hezekiah prayed, and the Lord relented and allowed him to survive his illness. Nonetheless, King Yoshiah refused to give up, even knowing the probable outcome. And I think this is a great example of a motto that my father used to quote to me in my teenage years. Do what's right, and let the chips fall where they may. In other words, the goal ought not to be reward for our righteous behavior. The goal ought to be to live out however many or few days we have to the glory of God. The outcome is for him to decide. Until, unlike six years earlier, 
when he simply issued royal edicts to end idolatry in his kingdom, this time Josiah began his new purge by calling the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem to join him at the temple for a solemn ceremony. And along with elders and other leading men, as well as the priests and the prophets and as many of the common people of Judah who who would come, the whole kingdom was bid to attend and to hear the reading of the rediscovered Torah scroll. Now, sad as it is to report, these may be the first actual words of Holy Scripture that the nation had heard in scores of years, if not more. The second verse calls what was read the Sefer Berit, the Book of the Covenant. So if this term is intended to be precise, and it's not just another general name for the five books of Moses, then what was going to be read to the crowd was indeed the law. That which was given to Moses on Mount Sinai as the law code that Israel was to live by. And since the point of this convocation was for the people of Judah to learn God's actual regulations and His commandments as opposed to a series of man-made doctrines that they had gone by for decade after decade, then it would be necessarily the law of Moses that they would need to hear. Further, in a scene reminiscent of Mount Sinai, after Moses presented the covenant to the people, all in attendance acknowledged their acceptance of its terms and conditions. And we should not overlook the words that King Josiah spoke to pledge himself and his people to obey all of these commandments as, because it would be with all their being and with all their hearts. Now let me end today's lesson by saying that the rabbis have gone to great length to make it clear. Follow me please. This was not a new covenant that was being instituted by Josiah in the sense it was something that had never existed before. It wasn't even a revised covenant. Rather, this was a renewed covenant. It was the same old covenant made new again after it was sitting on the shelf for so long. And I'm going to tell you that this is exactly how we ought to regard that which the church calls the new covenant or the new covenant in Christ. It is a renewed covenant. It is only new in the sense that the blood needed to validate it was provided by the Son of God. And He also became its mediator. And membership to this covenant, along with all of its saving benefits, became extended to people, Gentiles, outside of national Israel. It is the same covenant that Moses first received and that King Josiah and Judah just agreed to in a rededication ceremony. We're going to continue with this chapter next week.